This morning is our last sermon in our series on times of troubles. It's been a quick one, six weeks. And uh, we get to kick off the book of James next week. I hope uh, you get a chance to read through it at least once before we start preaching on it. Our topic is persecution, times of persecution, specifically when Christians are persecuted for their faith. Um, And I want to start as an intro. I don't want to assume that everyone sort of knows some of the long history of persecution of Christians uh, who have suffered for the faith through the ages. So I just want to start with some highlights just to give us a historical framework for our discussion to remind us that it's not a new phenomenon and it's also not a thing of the distant past. So this is a quick, quick overview. Uh, Eleven of Jesus' original twelve disciples were killed for their faith, either beheaded, crucified, thrown from a wall, stabbed, beaten to death. They died proclaiming their Savior that they had seen die and rise again. The early church that sprang up from the witness of those apostles and the other followers of Jesus uh, was also persecuted for uh, following Jesus, refusing to bow down to the emperors, the other gods of the Roman Empire. Uh, They were thrown to wild beasts. They were used as torches. They experienced other uh, brutal executions. Uh, It's been calculated that between the first persecution under Nero in 64 AD to the Edict of Milan in 313, that Christians experienced 120 years of toleration and peace, 129 years of persecution. Christianity was then, after the Edict of Milan and Constantine, coming to faith in Christ. Uh, In 313, Christianity became the official religion, so persecution eased. But Christians for the next hundreds of years found persecution in other lands, like Persia. And things were certainly ramped up as Islam got started, and Islam spread throughout uh, the region, starting in the 7th century. Fast forward a bit to uh, the... Post-Protestant Reformation, if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, which I did several years ago, it just records many stories from very early on, but uh, especially a ton of the uh, stories of the martyrs uh, killed for their faith following the Reformation. And so as the counter-Reformation, the the church's response to the new Protestant movement, and And then the the politics of it all, of Bloody Mary's reign, especially as she hunted down the Protestants in England. Um, But also a a reminder that those who claim the name of Christ but belong to different churches can persecute one another as Catholics and Protestants uh, killed one another and then sometimes ganged up together on the Anabaptists. Uh, Fast forward further, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, the Boxer Rebellion in China saw the majority of Christians kicked out uh, or killed for their faith. Also, the 
missionary movement in the 19th and 20th century uh, brought many men who participated in that to their deaths. We think of the very famous, uh, in the mid-50s, a missionary group headed by Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who uh, tried to befriend and reach a remote tribe in Ecuador and were killed by the tribesmen. Uh, You probably know that story. More recently, 2015, Boko Haram announced its intentions to cleanse Nigeria of all Christians, destroying villages, burning churches, killing thousands of people. In northern Syria, nearly a million Christians have been driven from their homes by ISIS. Uh, Similar situations in Iraq, Libya, Kenya. According to the organization Open Doors, and I think this is in your uh, sermon outline, 215 million Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. That represents one in 12 Christians. Uh, Every month, I think these are the stats actually that's in there, every month 255 Christians are killed. They, They average, they estimate. 104 abducted, 180 Christian women raped, sexually assaulted, or forced into marriage. Uh, 66 churches attacked, 160 Christians detained without trial and imprisoned every month. There has never been a shortage of persecution for believers in the history of the church, and, and that was a really abbreviated list. And, of course, we cannot pretend that Christians have not done the persecuting themselves, as some of the crusades and the religious wars in Europe come to mind. But a famous quote attributed to the early church father, Tertullian, might have heard this quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning when Christians are killed for their faith, it can result in others taking the faith more seriously and more people coming to faith, an urgency, a growth, the spirit working. That was certainly the case in the early church, in the Reformation, and in many places in the world today, like China. It's also been pointed out that that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the blood of martyrs coincides with the stamping out of the church, as happened, has happened in Japan, and after the persecution of the Protestant Huguenots in the 16th and 17th century France. For our purposes, uh, persecution, uh, easy definition would be any hostility experienced as the result of one's identification as a Christian. Obviously, we shouldn't be so thin-skinned that anyone making a joke or questioning something about our church or our faith is automatically persecution. Um, Nor should we confuse the times when we tick people off because we are rude or unloving. Don't confuse that with persecution. And and certainly, as as, uh, 1 Peter 4 reminds us, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Don't, Don't commit a crime and expect that the consequences are then persecution. 
But Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Our main text today, we're going to flip around a lot. I think I've put most of the scripture verses in the sermon outline. But our main text is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And along with the book of Acts, this presents a very clear picture of the great Apostle Paul's times of persecution and suffering. Paul is a fascinating man. Because, as you remember his early life, he went from a man who persecuted followers of Jesus, right? He was a Pharisee. He was a strict Orthodox Jew who felt that Jesus was a heretic and that he was drawing people away from the true godly faith. And Paul had a mission to try to stamp that out. But he goes from that to becoming one of those Christians facing persecution. And more than that, he became an amazing evangelist, church planter, and the writer of sacred scripture. So as we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me pray before we read that. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, that our lives may be conformed to what we have understood, so that we may be pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let's start verse 16. We'll go through the first half of 23. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. I'm just going to stop right there uh, before Paul goes farther. Um, And if you didn't catch the sarcasm and didn't understand that that's where he was going, you, you probably didn't fully understand that passage. Uh, without going too deeply into the background of 2 Corinthians, since we have not been studying it, we did 1 Corinthians. Um, but uh, during the writing of this second epistle, uh, Paul was having to defend himself against people who were very critical of him. Now, we did see that in 1 Corinthians as well. But it seems like a very prominent theme uh, he was having to prove his credentials, right? right? What, what made him a leader in the church? What gave him the right 
to tell them what to do. Um, and so he was having to say, even though he hated boasting in himself, right? He was always emphasizing, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. But that wasn't good enough for these people, right? That had gotten in among the church and were trying to essentially trash Paul's name. As Ada Spencer comments on this passage, what Paul is really saying is that only fools boast. And that the Corinthians only listen to fools who boast a lot. Therefore, Paul claims that he must pretend to boast to be foolish and boastful to be heard by them. So Paul comes up with this kind of fun strategy. If you want boasting, I'll boast. But I'm still not going to boast about what you want me to, about my wisdom, about my uh, oratory skills, my godliness. I'll list all the ways that I've been persecuted for preaching the gospel. Of course, no, one's, no one was impressed by that. And that's, that's kind of Paul's point. Is I'm not going to boast like the world does. I'll boast about God's will being done. And so we pick up at uh, the end of verse 23 and through the end of 30. Paul's list of, of what he went through, of his hardships. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, ministry life in the first century was not fun and easy. Uh, I think it was exciting. I think there was a lot happening. But these, uh, some of these trials and persecutions were simply a result of the ancient world's travel dangers, right? The fact that Paul moved around a lot to establish churches and then check back on them. I'm not sure how often we'd be worried about uh, shipwrecks and different things in modern ministry. But I sure hope that people in ministry today who we often we can complain about what we call first world problems, right? Long office hours, boring meetings, complaining parishioners, all of those things. I hope that when we do that, that we go back to this passage and see that we really have very little, if nothing, to complain about. And not that our goal should be to 
like match Paul's level of real ministry, right? We shouldn't seek out persecution. But to realize how blessed we are in America today to speak freely for the most part, to easily and comfortably travel, to have all the resources we need at our fingertips, to have Bible translations, commentary, everything we need from Amazon, like that. Now, looking through this list again, some of these hardships that Paul lists, you'll recognize from the book of Acts. But many, many are not there. Um, it's likely that Paul was imprisoned seven times throughout his ministry. Uh, as you see, the verse 24, 39 lashes was the maximum allowed uh, in the, usually it's, uh, it was in the synagogue, because Deuteronomy 25 law said that 40 lashes was the maximum. That, you couldn't, that could kill you. It was essentially that phrase, to be beaten within an inch of your life. Uh, now, Paul, by his own testimony in Acts 22, says that he had initiated those kind of floggings before he became a Christian. And then he says he, that he received uh, lashes five times, beaten with rods three times. But just before that, in verse 23, he said he had had countless beatings. So here's the, he's counted them, but there must have been so many other ones that we don't know about. Maybe uh, beatings by hand. Uh, Acts 14 recounts how Paul was taken outside of the city of Lystra and stoned, left for dead, and yet miraculously he got up and walked away. Uh, Acts records nine sea voyages that Paul took, uh, apparently three of them were shipwrecks. Um, probably the shipwreck that is mentioned in Acts is after 2 Corinthians was written. Uh, he talks about sleepless nights, right? Toil and hardship. Many a sleepless nights, and that could be a reference to his imprisonments or his late preaching at nights because that's when people could come hear him. Or perhaps it was that's when he made tents and he preaching during the day. Um, when you stack yourself up, I don't care who you are, you realize how little we struggle or are persecuted for our faith. I, I hardly ever feel danger in ministry unless I'm on a mission trip in the inner city or something, and then it's pretty controlled. Um, but he lists over and over danger in all these areas. I've never been threatened with violence doing ministry I've never gone without food or, or faced imprisonment. Let me tell you, if I got whipped 39 times, I would retire on the spot and go deliver pizzas. Um, but there is one area where I think we can identify with Paul. Verse 28, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I think we can... Feel that. I feel the anxiety, the weight of shepherding souls, particularly the weight of those who have walked away and chosen the world over Jesus. 
This is an amazing passage showing us the amazing life of Paul. No matter what he faced, all this suffering and persecution, he pressed on. He continued to be faithful to his calling. I think it's absolutely astounding. Have you seen or heard about the movie A Quiet Place? Just out recently, it's uh, the real-life husband and wife, uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, star as a husband and wife with their three kids in, in America. It's kind of vague, the details of there's some beasts or aliens or something who are, have kind of decimated the area. And the only thing they know is that the beasts can't see that they have great hearing. And so if there's any noise, they will come and attack. And so the family has to spend its days in silence. And so John Krasinski just walks around doing this the whole movie and constantly shushing everyone and trying to get them to keep from making any noise so that they aren't attacked. It's a, it's a pretty tense movie, especially when Emily Blunt's character goes into labor. Um, it's not a horror movie. I'm too chicken for horror movies, but pretty suspenseful. So I was reflecting on that movie, and um, it, it tends to stay with you for a few days. And I was thinking, that's kind of a picture of what is going on today in social media, in our culture at large. If we stand up and make noise about what we believe, it's going to attract the people who want to come and correct us and chop us down to size. And hey, it happens on both sides of the conversation, of the political aisle. I've seen posts by well-meaning uh, liberal Democrats get very attacked and then well-meaning conservative Republicans get attacked and derided. And, but listen, I feel like a lot of Christians, me included, are like the quiet place. We're walking around trying not to make too much noise, trying not to get attacked for what we believe. But I think persecution is most likely coming. I can definitely foresee a scenario where any biblically orthodox, faithful Christian church gets labeled a hate group. And if you belong to one, you will not get many professional jobs. You will be kept out of important groups and circles. Don't believe me? Ask Chip and Joanna Gaines, who had a very successful uh, home improvement show, and then the media got hyped up because they belonged to a conservative Baptist church that preaches the Bible, as far as I can understand. But it was a, a homophobic and uh, hate group. They, they wrote, kind of rode that out. But ask Tim Keller, who was uninvited from speaking at Princeton Seminary because he's associated with the backwards PCA and doesn't share their values. Or Louis Giglio, who was supposed to pray at a presidential inauguration, but they found 
a random sermon. He was, he's kind of a champion of setting slaves free worldwide. But they narrowed in on the one sermon where he mentioned that the gay agenda is coming. Kind of like this, maybe. Um, and they said, no, he's not praying here. I don't want to be an alarmist. We can get pretty you know, paranoid about that stuff. But I want you to know there needs to be a real expectation that you will affirm this culture's views or you will not be allowed access. And really, all cultures ask that of its members. Uh, a former member of this church wrote a blog post that kind of stayed with me, resonated with me, that the new uh, sexual tolerance and politics of homosexuality and gender fluidity, uh, it's the new version of the 90-foot statue of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. And either you bow down to it and completely agree and affirm, or they'll throw you into the fiery furnace, which is where... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up, right? It's not the same punishment, but it's the same idea. Bow down or be an enemy of the state. Now, we, we probably would need to unpack that a lot because there are ways uh, to love and to affirm the Christian gospel without offending. Um, it's a balance. But I want to... Let's, let's move into, uh, there are, I really see three types of persecution around the world today. Actually, before I do that, let me, let me also step back a little and talk about the idea that, something I, I mentioned earlier, um, that many people see Christian persecution is not that Christians are being persecuted so much as that they've done the persecuting. Right? They uh, bring up the Crusades in the days when Christian, Christianity was an official religion of a country. And anyone who didn't agree with that religion was killed. Christians have oppressed the Jews and cults and sects that they didn't agree with. Um, slavery, segregation, and racism have often been justified by Christians quoting the Bible. Right, the Ku Klux Klan claims to be Christian, doesn't it? Um, the prominence of the gay and transgender movement, I think a lot of people see as a correction of their oppression and persecution and hatred, often from uh, the religious. So some of this is fair. Some of it is unfair. Uh, a lot of that was political violence that was cloaked, used the church as a cloak, but not all of it. And I think Christians are responsible for a lot of violence and oppression through the years. And I think before we point out how we are persecuted, I think it's important that we search out how we or our people have hurt others and repent of it. And vow that we never would persecute another religion or hurt others uh, or someone that does not share our faith. I think that's, that's the heart behind what our denomination has been trying to do recently. I don't know if we've done it perfectly, but we've tried to say, listen, we are going to own and repent the past sins of segregation and racism that was around at the founding of the PCA. 
I think that's the heart of that. To identify it, see, we repent of that. And we want to make a better uh, effort to represent Christ. So, uh, three main areas, I think, where Christians are persecuted today. We see it certainly in the clash of religions, where Christians are considered infidels by millions of Muslims, uh, deserving of death, forced conversion to Islam. Now, obviously, not all Muslims in all Islamic countries, but certainly you've seen that in the world. Uh, Number two, in foreign politics, uh, I think you see the the ruling elite in communist societies uh, say that there's no God and that they, the, the leaders, the leadership, the government takes the place of God. And so Christianity becomes the serious competitor for the people's loyalty and a threat to power. I think this is the, a pretty clear echo of what the early church experienced uh, and defied the Roman emperor worship. And then number three in America, where physical threats have not been common, but Christian believers are increasingly reviled, and biblical values are equated with ignorance and bigotry. So now the question is, how do we respond when persecution comes our way? Um, Number one is, I think we start with those who are already being persecuted. Uh, We try to have a uh, persecution Sunday once a year. Anne-Marie kind of heads that up. Um, There are some very tangible things you can do to support persecuted believers around the world. I've listed them there. Pray, engage, volunteer, give. Um, and there's groups like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors that you come, come alongside and they have all kinds of resources for you. I've got a calendar in my office of daily prayers. I often neglect it, but I shouldn't. Number two, Uh, As we read the scriptures, as we read the New Testament, we have to remember that we are promised persecution. 1 John 3, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Timothy 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think these scriptures meant a lot to their original audience, reminded them that, hey, this is not a surprise. Jesus, the apostles, told us this was coming. And the church through the ages, and it's just as true today, expect to be opposed, maybe even hated for loving Jesus. If the world hated Jesus, it might hate you too. Don't be surprised. Number three, uh, persecution tests our faith, and many fail the test. Remember the parable of the sower, where Jesus talks about how 
The seed, the word, went out to different kind of soils. Uh, Matthew 13, 20, 21, As for what was sown on rocky ground, that is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. All sufferings and trials have the opportunity to shape us, to make us more Christ-like, to, in the long term, bless us. But many people run from that. Many people don't want that. As suffering hits the church, true believers will remain. Others will fall away. The church may be more purified in suffering. Number four, sometimes we think God is absent in our suffering. We've got to remember that he is present. He is there. The Psalms cry out things like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And yet the Psalms also answer, The Lord will vindicate, vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This is going long, so I'm not going to recount this, but look up Jeremiah chapter 20 this afternoon. Goes in this point. Jeremiah persecuted, put in stocks, and then his conversation with the Lord. Look it up. The Bible promises that God walks through our pain with us and also that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Number five, our response to persecution must be loving and godly. Matthew 5, 24, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul says in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for so by doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How different would the history of the church be if Christians always remembered these commands? To love our enemies, to pray for our persecutors is a radical, godly response that is potentially the only way to win them over. Number six, when we endure and remain steadfast through our persecution, through our suffering, we are promised great things. Mark 10, 30, Who will not receive a hundredfold now? In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and 
utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know about you, but I look forward to heavenly reward. As hard as it is to suffer on earth, one day we will be sitting in heaven knowing that it was all worth it. This life is merely a short prelude to a long eternity. A decision to live for Christ and to follow Christ and if need be to suffer and even die for Christ. If we die for Christ, we are merely imitating him because he died first, right? Jesus was persecuted and killed by the set plan of God the Father to accomplish our salvation. Jesus divided people when he came. Either they were drawn to his message and they followed him and they loved him, what he was doing, or they were angry and they felt threatened. And the religious leaders that hated him brought him to trial on false charges, had him beaten and whipped and ultimately sentenced to death. The one true innocent person in all of human history who loved his enemies, who brought healing and deliverance everywhere he went, was nailed to a cross to suffer a violent, painful death. But in that death, he bought salvation. He paid the price for our sins so that when we die, we don't have to be condemned and pay for our sins. He's already paid for them. Isaiah says that by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus underwent persecution, suffering, and death so that we would have the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with God the Father. We are called into that life to follow him, to be willing to undergo all things for the sake of obedience. The book of Revelation reminds us that as we bear up, as we overcome, and even as the ESV translates, as the one who conquers. It has a lot of beautiful promises. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. I'll give you a moment to lift up a prayer, and then I'll close us in prayer before our offering time.
Lord God, thank you for this passage in 2 Corinthians. Thank you for the example in the life of Paul who withstood unbelievable opposition to advance your kingdom. And for the lives of men and women throughout church history who have been so brave and so obedient to death. God, we understand that very little, I think, here in this country and I think we take it for granted. Lord, give us a heart to remember our brothers and sisters suffering around the world who are silenced, who are imprisoned, who are killed, who are enslaved because they are believers. And Lord, give us boldness to live out our faith, to proclaim the gospel. But even more, help us to be ready when persecution comes to not see it as something strange, but to welcome it and to respond with your greater grace, with love, with compassion, with forgiveness for those who would seek to harm us, to slander us, whatever it may look like. And Lord, we have the ultimate example of Jesus who gave himself for us. The persecution and suffering that he experienced on the cross gives us new life and salvation. And we just say, Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.